whether it's an investor or as an entrepreneur, disruption is basically looking for a new product or service, a new business model, and attacking the market with it. And the world is either you're an attacker or you're a defender. <laughs> Hello, everybody. David Schwab here. Welcome back to Beyond High Street. Today, we sit with Don Davis. Don's a founding partner with Steve Case of Revolution Growth, as well as a co-founder and chairman of the Professional Fighters League. We spent a lot of time in this pod talking about the word disruption, both for him as an investor at Revolution, but also as an entrepreneur, and how he looks to customize business models, tweaking the mundane to try to make a difference. And how after watching a $4 billion acquisition of the UFC, did he raise his hand and said, wait, I can create something better and more unique than this. And he's done that with the Professional Fighters League and has been growing it now for 18 months. I do love the segment we talk about of being an attacker versus defender or being a builder versus manager. Great insight from Don there. And at the age of 40, when Time Warner came in on the acquisition of AOL, and he didn't want to be a defender, how he left and actually started a class at Miami called Real Business and would fly in every week, live with his parents in Cincinnati, and teach that class that has been going on for a decade plus. He gives great tips that everyone should listen to, students should listen to, about going all in and finding your unique talent. I really appreciated Don taking some time. It was a great conversation. Hope you enjoy the pod. Take care. I see disruption from two vantage points. Uh, I have two different jobs. Uh, my day job is working as a founding partner at Revolution. And there we invest in and help build disruptive companies. So there we're mostly an investor. And we look for growth stage companies that are disrupting a big market. There we mostly invest in consumer-facing stuff. So it could be something like Sweetgreen, which is in the fast casual space, um, salads, or it could be something like DraftKings, you know, in, in, in the fantasy space, or it could be something like Custom Inc., you know, which is the largest group T-shirt custom company. So salads and fantasy sports and T-shirts are three very different markets, but what they're doing is the same. They're disrupting the market with an innovative new product, a different brand that speaks to that consumer, and a business model that has a different twist or a different advantage. So disruption can happen in the most mundane of areas like fast food or T-shirts or the most new areas like fantasy sports it can come from all different angles. And my second job, my night job and my weekend job is I started my own company as an entrepreneur, the Professional Fighters League. And it's the first MMA organization that offers fighters a real chance at a meritocracy. We're a real sport. So we have a regular season, a playoff, and a championship, just like you have in the NFL or just like you have in the NBA, where the best has to beat the best to win. And as you might know in the UFC, it's matchups. Hey, I'll put Dave against Dot, and they'll fight. It's a one-off event. It's not really where the best have to advance to beat the best. In the Professional Fighters League, the disruption is MMA meets March Madness. Mm -hmm. In other words, the sport format is coming to MMA. That is a disruption that's never been done in any combat sport, whether it's MMA or boxing. Nobody figured out within rules, within media rights, within fighter safety, within how to program that. 
how to really bring that sport format to a, a combat setting. So I'm an entrepreneur with my second job in doing a disruptive business. So whether it's an investor or it's an entrepreneur, disruption is basically looking for a new product or service, a new business model, and attacking the market with it. And the world is either you're an attacker or you're a defender. <laughs> and defenders are big companies that like the way it is. They're doing fine. They're making money. They're sitting in their desk. Everybody's telling them they're smart. Attackers are new companies, new entrepreneurs that want to change the world. They want things to be different. And, and when you think about the world in that very simple way of are you an attacker or are you a defender, that disruption is coming from attacking companies, whether they're young companies, whether they're entrepreneurs, or whether they're aggressive big companies, they're attackers. So I'm going to ask you the question in a second on have you always been a defender or an attacker, but go, go to the, the company number two there. Uh, what was the light bulb moment where, I mean, you clearly found a business model that's different um, to an existing type of business out there, but w were you in another uh, MMA type activity or just other types of live entertainment? W what made you say, wait a second, there's something different that we can twist here? Yeah, the Professional Fighters League idea started literally the day that the UFC sold for $4 billion. I saw the announcement, hit my screen, and I thought two things. One, $4 billion is a big number. And two, that's not a very good product. I think I could do better. And I called my wife at 25 years, Sharon, and I said, I see my new business right away. I hadn't had a thought of MMA until that moment. I'm a huge fan of sports. I'm a huge student of different sport models. And through Revolution, I've been a big investor in Sport Radar, the largest data company in the world, way bigger than Stats Inc., <laughs> DraftKings, from the very beginning of First Fantasy. Um, my partner, Ted Leonsis, and I, together with others, own Team Liquid. We're the first to buy an esports team. So we've been disruptive investors and visionary in sports, in sports tech and sports commerce. But MMA was very new to me. But when I saw that big sale number and that kind of big old legacy old product, I said, I could do better. And I said, what would make it better is two things. One, what if it really meant something like other sports? I like a big fight like everybody else, but those are like one fight a year, like Mayweather McGregor. It's just great entertainment. That's one fight a year. Or growing up, that would be like, you know, Tyson Holofield, that's like one fight a year. Hagler Hearns, that's one fight a year. All those other fights don't mean anything. They're just people setting up people to fight and a bunch of hype happening outside the cage or outside the ring. What means something is a meritocracy. Win and advance. <laughs> that's what sport is. And this isn't a sport. So I said, idea one is, hey, I'll make that a sport. And I said, I don't know how yet. But it's got to be, because every other, every other major competition is a true sport format. What was and idea the, number, Go ahead, keep going. Keep yeah, going. and then idea number two was the video product is pretty boring. It hasn't changed much in 50 years. A couple cameras, and they, and they are centered on the guy in the ring. I said, where's the analytics? Where's the data? Where's the gambling? Where's the fantasy? Where's my social feed? This should look like MLB Gold Pass does for baseball with all kind of streaming data, analytics, social gaming, gambling, everything possible on that screen. So I said, if I can make it into a sport format of a meritocracy, if we can make this into the most modern 
type of product, actually putting the, quote, second screen experience integrated into the video product so it was great in terms of engagement, hey, that would be something different. And those were the two big ideas that really struck me that day. Now, it took us 18 months of work to figure out how to do that and to put together the entire Professional Fighters League in order to do that. This has been our first season, so very successful. But those are really the two disruptive ideas that came to me that day and that we've built the company around. Yeah, and one of the questions I was going to ask about how you find disruption, and certainly at Revolution, you, there's a team of people that are looking in the marketplace and networking and conversations. This to you was you know, a, a Google search or just what pops up on the on, uh Yahoo, or or pick the search engine for the day that says four billion dollars. When you when you're looking for ideas and thinking about disruption, where do you search? What are you looking for? Well, look, a lot of it can be um, very proactive, um, but within that proactivity, um, you need to do a lot of work. So let me give you an example. Um, we had a theme at Revolution that food would be disrupted. How food. Um, is consumed, what kind of food, what kind of brands, and that essentially the whole generation, I'm 55 years old, the whole generation of, of my kids would want to eat things very differently from very different kind of brands, delivered and prepared very differently than we did. And that was our proactive theme. That was an insight we had based upon not only research, but a bunch of understanding on how consumers' behavior is changing. But then we had to go out and do a bunch of hard work and meet dozens and dozens and dozens of companies and entrepreneurs who are doing new concepts in food. Some are doing food delivery. Some are doing new restaurant chains. You know, some are doing new meal kits. So think of it as once you have a proactive theme that's based upon, you know, call it part science, part intuition, part experience, then you start going to meet great entrepreneurs in the market that are doing things within that theme. And you start to analyze their business and, and start to look at all the possible ideas of what, what are within that theme. And within that, for example, we came across... Um, all these restaurants that were essentially a new version of McDonald's. Right? You know, 70 years ago, McDonald's created fast food, and there were 250,000 of the big five built. McDonald's, Wendy's, Kentucky Fried Chicken, Taco Bell, etc. Very few people want to eat, eat at any of those big five anymore. So the question is, what's the next 250,000 of fast casual restaurants are going to be built. Well, it's going to be A, different kind of food, B, different brands. So we started meeting with everybody that was within that segment. And the two investments we made, one was called Sweet Green in salads, and one was called Cava in Mediterranean. And we identified about 10 categories that there would be big companies. And Panera had kind of won the sandwich company, right? you know, the sandwich segment. Um, and somebody would win salad, and somebody would win Mediterranean. And so within those 10 categories, we made all kind of companies. And today, um, when we invest in Sweet Green, you know, it was just in D.C. It just had 20 stores. It was just a $50 million company. Uh, just announced last week, a billion-dollar company. And Cava's on its way there in the Mediterranean segment. And there it comes from analyzing the team their financials, their brand, their product, all the same kind of stuff you learn about in business school. Um, and that's, you know, that's the hard work. Once you have the proactive theme, then you meet a bunch of companies and you do the hard work of, you know, team, product, 
finances, strategy, position, all the stuff you learn about. Mm. All right, so back to the first one, attacker or defender? Sounds like from a disruption, attacker is where your mind is. Have you always been there, or were you a defender at some point? Look, when I went to Miami, I was a finance major, and back then the finance classes were pretty boring. So I loved business, but within school, I said, hmm, I'm not so sure about this, so I went to law school and became a lawyer for a couple of years. Um, but then, after being a lawyer a couple of years, I said, man, i got to get back to that business thing. And, um, and so I went to the Tribune Company, which owned newspapers and TV stations, and also the Chicago Cubs. And, um, and the one thing I learned there was traditional old businesses, like newspapers and TV stations. While I love the substance of those businesses, they've been around 50 years for TV, 150 years for newspapers. And there wasn't much you could do to change them. And there wasn't much you could do to advance your career as a young person if you worked there. It was being more of a manager than a builder. Um, And I said, hmm, I want to be a little more creative in terms of my work. I want to have a little more impact in terms of my personal contribution. So I thought I'm probably a little bit more of a builder than a manager. And at that time, I'd met Steve Case, who was running this little company called America Online. It was the eighth largest online service company at the time. So CompuServe and Delphi and Genie and Prodigy were all much bigger companies. Um, And I convinced Tribune to make a little $10 million investment for 10% of AOL at the time. And obviously it went on to, to be the huge success that it was. That's where I first met Steve. And from there, you know, got offered a job at AOL and eventually then said, Hey, I've done all I can being on the outside of the internet because I'm doing kind of new media and internet at Tribune. I'm kind of dot-comming a media company. As a young guy, I should build, not manage. And let me move from defending, which is kind of dot-comming a media company, to attacking, which is an internet company really trying to change all these business models. And that's when I moved to AOL. And I think when I was 35 years old, I kind of changed from, you know, a defender, which is kind of being a lawyer or being a business person at a traditional company, which is my first 10 years, to being an attacker, which is being a business person at a called a growth company or an entrepreneur. I'm more a venture capitalist, which has really been my last 20 years. Hmm. And and you mentioned Miami and finance. I know there's a class on campus, real business, that uh, means a lot to you. <laughs> There's your inspiration of taking classes in classroom of subject, uh, book teaching and turn it into something of real-world practicality for students, right? Yeah. Um, when I left AOL at 40, which was a year after AOL merged with Time Warner, which was his own attacker and defender story, Time Warner being the ultimate defender and AOL being the ultimate attacker, those cultures clashed, and so I decided to leave that, and I just turned 40, and I thought to myself, given what I know now, I wish I sure knew that when I was 20, not 40, and, and to be blunt, I didn't really like any of my courses at Miami. I loved Miami. I loved my activities. I loved the students, and I loved my time there, but I didn't love the classes, and I said, man, I want to create the class I would have liked. And I called Dean Jenkins, 
and Roger Jenkins, I think, was the best dean Miami's ever had. And I said, hey, I'd like to come and teach a class. He was great, like Econ 201. I said, no, not one, not one of your classes. <laughs> the class I'd create. And I said, I want to call it real business. He goes, well, Don, I think that would kind of offend the rest of the, you know, the, uh, the faculty. Like, we're not teaching real business. I said, well, yeah, but that's what I want to call it. And I said, look, it's going to be 10 principles to happiness, success, and business. Just 10 sentences, things that are true, that if you really internalize when you're 20 years old, it'll really help you in, in your early career. Uh, that course has now been taught for 12 years in a row. It's a senior seminar. Uh, I taught it the whole first year and, and wrote the whole curriculum. Um, so, for example, one of the 10 principles, and we don't tell you the principles in advance, but you know, I'll give you one principle, is everything is sales. And I ask most of the students at the beginning of the class, if I, when I teach that particular module, how many of you are you know, going into finance or venture capital or you know, HR or consulting or investment banking? And I write up where everybody's in. And I say, how many people are going into sales? Of course, no one's going into sales because everybody thinks sales is Willie Loman is very uncool. And then over the next hour, through the exercises and readings and discussion we have, what they realize is, the higher you go in your career and the more important and more senior your job becomes, ironically, more of your week is about sales. Mm. Whether it's trying to recruit board members to join your company, whether it's trying to raise money for your venture capital company, whether it's trying to sell your idea to your boss, whether it's trying to get yourself placed on the new initiative task force. Most of life is sales, and sales is not what you think it is when you're in college. And being good at sales and understanding what sales really is, is essential. And those are the kind of things that we, we try to teach in real business, and those are the kind of things that I think Miami students in particular are well-equipped to excel at, mm. because like Miami students literally are the best, well-rounded students in America. And whereas they might not, like some schools say, we produce the best X or we produce the best Y or we produce the best Z, what I think Miami University, particularly the business school, can say is we produce the best well-rounded people here. And part of that is understanding how to work well with other people, how to follow and how to lead. And, and so, therefore, to me, a lot of the call it the, the truisms or the little sentences of real business are those things that are really important for you to internalize and remember about how to follow and how to lead and how to work well with other people, which is essential really to getting ahead that first five to 10 years in your career. Mm. And what was it like as a 40-year-old back on campus every week with the 18 to 22-year-olds? It, it was really interesting for me because when I went to Miami, my dad grew up a salesman, um, and my mom was a homemaker. I grew up in Cincinnati. And so I didn't have any connections, um, and I thought I had all the advantages in the world, but you know, I didn't have anything that anybody else in Miami didn't have. And, and so I understand when they're sitting there the thought of how am I going to get ahead? How am I going to get the job I want? How am I going to get to where I want to be? How am I going to make enough money? Um, how am I going to get the promotion? How am I going to um, really make it? Or whatever the phrase is that we all think about when we're 20. I had all those same thoughts. And I remember what that was like yesterday. Um, and, you know, I was, a, I was a member of Phi Delta fraternity there. I lived in Denison Hall and, um, you know, I was chairman of the lecture board. I remember all these things like they were yesterday, having all those same thoughts mm. that they're probably having and, and had a very similar 
call it middle class, regular path that 80% of the people there had. And so I feel like I have this ability to relate and hopefully I have this ability to relate in such a way that could help them on that first step in some small way when they leave. Um, you know, in terms of giving them just, just one or two tools to, to help them as they take that first step when they leave. That's great. And speaking of disruption, going back to the just beginning of this thing, one of the most recent um, investments you've made as a, as a new owner of with Team Liquid in esports, and both that you and I were reading recently about Miami is crushing it in esports, one of the top programs in the country. Just, just take a second here on that sport, the growth where you see it could go, where it may not go, your interest in it. Yeah, uh, my business partner, Ted Leonsis, who owns the Washington Wizards and Washington Capitals here in D.C., uh, together with uh, several other investors, we bought majority control of Team Liquid um, two years ago. We were the first to buy an esports team before anybody else did. Um, we saw two things. We saw the enormous international audience growth, and we saw the enormous potential monetization off that audience. I think just a little bit before everybody else did. And the fact um, that really blew us away, which is now common knowledge, is that more people watched the finals of League of Legends than watched the finals of the NBA or watched the finals of the World Series. And when you tell this to most people two years ago, they said, I don't even know what League of Legends is, <laughs> let alone what you're talking about. And when you said, look, 52 million people watch League of Legends, they go, where? On what device? On what network? And you go, well, mostly on their mobile phones on Twitch. They go, what? <laughs> um, so when you, when you see the kind of international engagement that had not yet reached the U.S., um, we said we have to get in. And I thought it was kind of like the NFL in the 1950s where really they only had two revenue streams. People going to the football games and one or two games a week on, on one of the channels. So right now in the NFL is $16 billion a year business, but in the 1950s it wasn't. You know, it was just an emerging game that people loved. Um, so it's unclear all the different ways that esports will be monetized. But any time you have an international audience base already that active, already that big, already that engaged, monetization tends to follow audience. And um, so we bought that majority control of Team Liquid uh, for about $10 million. Um, and we recently brought in Michael Jordan and several other investors um, at about a $200 million valuation uh, two years later. And Team Liquid now has been the first North American team to win the Dota 2 championship and was named ESPN Esports Team of the Year. So they're kind of like the New England Patriots of, of, of North American esports teams right now. But this is very, very early. Um, this is kind of like, I think, the Internet 1998. You know, so it's not the bleeding edge like the early 90s of the consumer Internet. But, but it's really kind of still very early, like the late 90s, the consumer Internet, just when, when Amazon was starting or just when, when eBay was starting, um, that this is very high growth for the next, next decade for sure. Yeah, I was going to ask that question. If, you, if, you, if it's in its infancy, where you think when it hits maturity? So you think the next decade, 10 years is kind of a, a good number on that. Yeah, I think, you know, look um, – you know, I still remember being at, at, at AOL in 1998, 1999, when, when Jeff Bezos 
came to AOL, and he was very worried about not making his first quarter profitability. Hmm. And he had not been named Time Magazine Man of the Year yet, and Amazon was still a relatively small company. And right now, Amazon, you know, biggest company in the world. But it's taken 20 years. Um, So things tend to be bigger than you think they will be, but they take longer than you think they will. So I think that will be true about anything that is a a very, very big market. So I think that's been true about e-commerce. That's kind of true in this on-demand transportation area that you're seeing, you know, um, and that's going to be true about esports. That it'll take a little longer than you think, but it will be bigger than you think. And to the students that are uh, getting accepted into Miami now and will join others in Oxford next fall, or to the students that are going to wrap up their senior year in four months, a, a tip or two for each of them about what what the world is going to be like over the next 5, 10, 30, 40 years or opportunities to consider taking advantage of? Um. Yeah, first thing I would say is the average student entering college or leaving college now will have 10 jobs, 10 jobs, different jobs in your career cycle. So obviously being fluid, being flexible, being resilient, um, being tough, um, being able to bounce back, all those things will be essential because you have 10 different jobs. So you don't have to get too worked up about any one decision. But you have to have those core traits of, of resiliency and those core traits of, of being able to, to bounce back and be um, able to be positive um, and, and from defeat and to be very proactive and aggressive to go after your next thing. That would be the overall climate um, and the overall context of which to make decisions. Um, it's not about picking the right field or the right job. It's you're going to have 10 jobs, and, and it's your mindset and your internal resiliency and proactiveness that will be essential. And I think the two tips that I would give people in terms of what, what makes people successful, number one is you've got to go all in on your career in the first five to eight years. So I would say prior to being 30, uh, balance is overrated. I know this is not a popular thing that I tell people. You can always let up later. You can always find balance later. So seek more responsibility. Ask for a bigger job. Work on the weekend. Success is intoxicating. Try to have success. You can always have balance later. You can always let up later. You cannot get back on the treadmill or try to get ahead later. That would be advice number one. And the collateral point would be everybody wants to be in the top 1%. But if you're in the top 1%, that means there's 3 million people like you in the United States. That's how hard it is. There's 325 million people in the U.S. So if you're in the top 1%, there's 3 million people like you. That's how many people are competing for what you want. So you have to find out what your unique talent is. So where does your chance for greatness lie? What are you really passionate about doing? What do you really like doing? Where does work not feel like work to you? That's what you've got to find. If something is no fun, do something else, because you can never work hard enough at it to really be great at it. Um, so find out, think of it as find out what your top 1% is, because that's where your career is going to be. That's where your flywheel and your sweet spot is. That would be my second piece of advice. 
Thank you, Don. Wow. Don Davis is all in. What a great 20 minutes. I learned a lot. Hopefully you guys did too. Follow his Team Liquid in eSports and all the other businesses he's associated with. Thanks, Don, for contributing back to Miami with that class and everything you do. Thank you all for listening. Share with friends and colleagues. See you at Skippers.